text falls in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, which occupies Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Uh, it's also found in Luke's Gospel uh, in a little different form, but perhaps most well-known as it's here in Matthew's Gospel. Hear the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and now as we study this portion of it, we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. We pray, O God, that by him we would feed on your word, our souls would be nourished. We pray that our minds would be uh, furnished and equipped and structured by your word. We pray that our lives would reflect the life that you call us to uh, in your word, and particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. And Father, we ask all of these things and pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. We return uh, this morning after a brief break through the Christmas season uh, to our study on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We began last fall with a study in Matthew chapter 5 and through last fall looked at the series of statements known as the Beatitudes in verses uh, 2 through verse 12 and uh, named that because each word begins with the Each uh, statement begins with the word blessed, beatus in Latin, hence beatitudes. Uh, And as we read those, we saw that those are something of a manifesto for Christian character. They are a portrait of what a Christian should look like. Uh, We noted that they're not even commands. They're not even statements saying that we ought to do these things. They are simply saying blessed are those who are poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who do mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we looked at those, one, they're not in isolation from each other, but they seem to follow something of a progression. Two, uh, these are not a, a call for all people in all times to be this way, but rather Jesus is speaking to his disciples. In a sense, they are assumptions that these things should be true of Jesus' disciples. They should be people who are poor in spirit, acknowledging their sin, humbling themselves before God, recognizing they have nothing to offer God, not proud, not arrogant toward God, but humbled before him, leading to mourning, grief over sin we see in ourselves, sin we see in others, sin we see in the world, and the painful and damaging and devastating effects that that sin causes in our lives and in our world, and and so on. And so we looked at those and said that they, they describe genuine Christian character. Now, they should be true of you to some degree if you were a Christian, But at the same time, implicit in what Jesus teaches there is the idea that we will seek to cultivate uh, by our study of the word, by the help of the Holy Spirit, these qualities in our lives. Well, then 
As Jesus, as we last saw in verses 11 and 12, spoke of the persecution that would arise to those who live in this way in the world, seems to shift gears as he moves into verse 13. Verses 13 through 16 uh, describe Christian witness. If Beatitudes talk about Christian character, the, the verses we're looking at today talk about Christian witness. In other words, who we are toward the world. And I would suggest to you that Jesus really didn't make a radical break in topic when he moved from verse 12 to verse 13, uh, but was in fact in many ways continuing with the very same theme. Uh, Verses 13 through 16 make explicit what the Beatitudes imply, and that is that our character should bear witness to the world of Christ in us and, and what Christ has done. Uh, in other words, our lives should bear power, bear, or bear witness uh, to others of the transforming power of God's grace in us. Now, what both of these passages, I think, make plain is that holy living, godly living, is not something that's done in isolation. You know, that's where people in old times made a mistake, you know, the monks, the hermits that would go off by themselves to live holy lives. Well, it's been said that um, the test of of someone's character is how they behave when they're alone, how they behave when no one's watching. Uh, And to a degree, that's true. How do you live when no one's watching? How do you live when you're all alone, when you are reasonably certain that you will not be called to account for your behavior? Is your obedience to Christ an outward thing uh, compelled upon you from without, or is it an inward thing that grows from in your heart? so that you desire to obey Christ whether anyone's watching or not? Uh, That's an important question. How do we behave when we're alone? Of course, reality is we're never alone. Reality is we're never uh, outside of the observant gaze of God. Proverbs 5, verse 21 tells us, A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. So you're never truly alone. God is present. You're never truly unwatched. God is observing. So certainly we live godly lives when we're alone, but you could also say, in many ways, that's the easiest time to live a life of godliness, is it not? Because after all, when we're around other people, how do we live? Their Christianity evident to others. What about those who always just seem to rub us the wrong way? How about those who always seem to be looking for a disagreement? How do we live godly, righteous lives in relationship to others? Does our faith in Christ control how we interact with others? Does it influence and affect others with whom we come in contact? You see, that's what verses 13 through 16 are especially concerned about. Christians should have a gospel influence on those around them and therefore on society at large. Christians should have a gospel influence on those around them and therefore on society at large. Well, let's look at what the passage says then. Uh, If the Beatitudes imply that we should have a certain influence on others, these verses make it quite plain. And and Jesus communicates here by use of two metaphors to illustrate the influence that we are to have. The first one is that of salt. Verse 13, you, and he's speaking here to his disciples, and he continues that second person which began when he was talking about persecution, blessed are you when others revile you. You, he says to them, are the salt of the earth. 
Now, what Jesus is saying to them here is that by virtue, virtue of who they are as his followers, those who believe in him, those who trusted in him, by virtue of who they are, they are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say be the salt of the earth. He doesn't say you have the salt of the earth. He says you are the salt of the earth. Now, to understand Jesus' metaphor, we have to understand the place that salt played in his day. Uh, in Jesus' day, they did not have freezers. They did not have refrigerators. In fact, those things are, are quite relative, relatively recent, that we were able to put something in, in, in a freezer and freeze it, that we could stick something in the refrigerator to keep it cold, uh, to keep meat from going bad, for instance. Uh, they didn't have those things. But what they did have was salt. And the salt could be used as a preservative rubbed into meat to keep it from spoiling, to keep it from going bad as quickly. Uh, those of you who are fans of the uh, Patrick O'Brien series, uh, made better known perhaps by the movie Master and Commander, uh, know that the sailors on those sailing ships ate salt pork, ate salt beef, uh, it, was, it was meat, but there was a lot of salt in that meat because they would store it, set it up in barrels, and it was well-preserved with, with salt, uh, the salt preserved. And when Jesus was speaking here of his followers as the salt of the earth, that was the idea that he had in mind. What would come to their mind? Well, salt is a preservative. It keeps meat from spoiling. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that the world is rotting. It is. It's rotting from sin. Now, the world is in a bad way. The world is like meat that is putrefying. It's going bad. And Jesus is saying to his followers, you are the salt that helps preserve that situation where you are. It helps preserve this world in which you live. Now, God, in his common grace protects the world from getting as bad and, and as brutal and as ugly as it could be. You know, we speak of God's special grace, his grace by which he has saved us in Christ, but there's also God's common grace where he sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous, on those who blaspheme his name. He is good to them. He shows goodness toward them. Well, God restrains sin in the world, surely. Romans 1 speaks of that, where it says that God gave them over to their sin. That's God removing his restraining hands to let people wallow in their own chosen sin. Sin is often its own punishment, and God removes his restraint and says, you want to sin? I'll let you sin and suffer in the misery of your sin. Well, God does restrain evil, but he also says to us as his people that we are to act as a preservative in the world, to keep the world preserved, to keep it from rotting or at least spoiling as quickly as it otherwise might. When you are in a situation, your character, your conduct, your words, insofar as they're Christ-like, act as a preservative, act as an influence for good. Now, some have also noted that salt is a, is, is a seasoning, and it is, uh, and certainly we could say that Christians should uh, season or add spice to any situation in which they may be found, whether it's school, whether it's work, wherever you might be. But I think the primary idea here of salt in, in their day was that of preserving, that of, of keeping something from spoiling quickly or going bad. And so as Christians, our presence, 
Our speaking up for what is right, our speaking up for what is good, is a way of being salt in the world. Now, some of you, many of you, I suppose, are familiar with World Magazine. I really like their statement. This isn't an advertisement for World, but I like the way they put it in, in describing their mission. As a, as a Christian news weekly, they say, World Magazine, World tries to be salt, not sugar. We like to report good news, but we don't make it sticky sweet. We also report bad news because Christ's grace becomes most meaningful when we're aware of sin. We want to be tough-minded, but warm-hearted. I think that's well put. I think that's an excellent description of what it means to be salt. We can't always smile benignly and allow sin to fester all around us. There are times and there are situations that call for a William Wilberforce to speak out against the slave trade. On a much smaller scale, there are times when you might have to speak out in your workplace, in your school, against what is wrong, against what is evil, to interject God's point of view. Now, that may come at a cost. You may be ridiculed. Go back to verses 11 and 12. You may be persecuted for righteousness' sake. That might happen. But you also may not know the real influence that you have by doing so on someone's life. And so we're to be salt, not sugar. There are times when the Christian cannot afford to smile and be sweet. When we must act, when we must not act, when we must speak up, whatever righteousness requires in the situation in which we find ourselves. Now notice what Jesus goes on to say. Salt can become ineffective. Look at verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? What do you think salt, sodium chloride, it can't lose its taste. Salt is what it is. However, in Jesus' day, very likely what they would refer to as salt was a, a white powder, perhaps uh, found around the Dead Sea, which is a very salty sea itself, uh, that would be used as, as salt. And it would contain sodium chloride. It had salt in it, but there were also other ingredients in it. Uh, sometimes the salt would, would sift out of it and you would just be left with powder. Sometimes a, an, an unscrupulous merchant could manage to sift the sodium chloride out and you're left with what amounts to road dust. Um, so that the salt, the powder, would no longer be salty. It's just dust. It, it lost its salty quality. And that's what Jesus is referring to. How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's become dirt for the road. As Christians, we can lose our saltiness. And that's what Jesus is warning against here. Uh, that can happen when we become sugar or try to be sugar, try to be sweet and nice to everyone, you know, wink at sin, ignore the, the requirements of righteousness, and just try to get along, you know, with everybody without uh, trying to stand out. We can lose our saltiness by trying to be sweet. We can also uh, lose our saltiness when we become the meat we're supposed to preserve. In other words, we become just like the world. Uh, a Christian, professing Christian, a real Christian, however you want to put it, who has been conformed to the world is no longer salt. There must be a distinction. Our lives, our speech, our attitudes must be different from, distinct from the world if we're going to have any influence for good. When the salt becomes the meat, the salt can't preserve the meat. And that's another way that we can lose our saltiness. Tragically, 
with many professing Christians in our nation, we seem to have very little effect because so many of those professing Christians live exactly like the world in their lives. Reflect the same sins, reflect the same conduct, reflect the same speech, the same priorities. They're no longer salt. They've lost their saltiness. They've lost their ability to preserve. Well, can Christian saltiness be restored? Well, if it's not, it, it's, it's not good for anything, but I do think that it can be restored. Uh, the dust can't be, but Christian saltiness can be. Uh, how? Well, by once again repenting of sin, seeking to live in a way that reflects Christ, Christ-like. Uh, another way that our saltiness can be restored is we have to be in contact with the meat. We have to be in contact with the world. A Christian in isolation is not acting as salt. I love the way James Montgomery Boyce puts in his commentary. He says, The salt never did any good when it was sitting on one shelf and the meat on another. To be effective, the salt had to be rubbed into the meat. In a similar way, Christians must allow God to rub them into the world. And this means they must be Christians at work, Christians in politics, Christians at home, Christians everywhere else that a normal life in their own society would take them. In other words, living as a Christian wherever you are, living for Christ, it doesn't mean being obnoxious. It means being godly. It means being righteous. It means reflecting the character of the Beatitudes. And so as Christians, we are to influence those around us. One metaphor that Jesus used here is that of salt. We are to be salt in the world. Well, another metaphor, familiar one that Jesus uses here in speaking of our influence on the world is that of light. Verse 14, you, he says to his disciples, are the light of the world. Again, by virtue of who we are as Christians, who we are as Christ's disciples, we are the light of the world. And you think about it. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus was talking to his disciples, his particular disciples, the twelve, and, and to the crowd that was listening, many of whom were Jesus' disciples, and he said to this relatively small group of people, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of Palestine? No. You are the light of the world. This is a big, big thing Jesus has in mind here. But he says to us, you are the light of the world. Now we need to realize, Jesus as he later said, is the light of the world. You and I are lights of the world, the light of the world only, insofar as we reflect Jesus' character. Much as the moon lights up the darkness of the night with a borrowed light. The moon has no light of its own. The moon reflects the light of the sun. Well, you and I, as the light of the world, merely reflect into the darkness the light of the sun, of God, Jesus. It's a borrowed light. And so what that tells us is that if we are going to be the light of the world, that we need to be a lot like Christ, that our lives, again, need to reflect his character, need to reflect the character portrayed in the Beatitudes. Now, why light? What does light do? Well, first, of course, light illumines the darkness. Light uh, lights up the room. Light allows us to see things as they really are. Many of you children, and all of you 
uh, in your childhood can remember being in a dark room and, or going into a dark room and <clears throat> seeing various things. Maybe your bedroom, very familiar place, and yet in the darkness you see things you think, oh, is that a, is that a man standing over there? Is that a monster in the closet? What, it, what is it? And you flip the light on and no, it's just the lamp that's always there. No, it's just your clothes hanging in the closet. You see things as they really are. Well, light does that. Light also exposes. Not everyone wants to be in the light. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19. He said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, referring to himself. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So as Christians... We're light in that we're able to portray things to the world as they really are. There really is a God who made the heavens and the earth, a God who rules over the heavens and the earth, and a God who will one day judge the heavens and the earth. This is a God who in his grace sent a Savior into the world. The world is not a random, meaningless, aimless place. It is ruled by God and is heading to a very definite point in history in which Christ will return. You see, as Christians, we are able to shed light on the realities of this universe in which we live. We're able to point out why certain behaviors are wrong and ultimately harmful, while other behaviors are right and beneficial. We have a perspective that the world does not have, but that the world desperately needs. Not everyone will receive the light well. Those who are in evil and love evil, love their sin, which to one degree or another is all of us, do not wish to be exposed, do not wish to be seen in the light, because the light exposes. I think that explains to a large degree why when Jesus was, was on earth, the Pharisees, scribes, uh, treated him as they did. Here was the Messiah. Uh, they certainly had their thoughts about him and who he was, as Nicodemus revealed when he came to Jesus in John 3. And he said, you know, we, we know who you are. We, we know what you're doing and uh, realize that, uh, you know, the kinds of things you were doing come only from one from heaven, <clears throat> and then um, the blind man, John chapter 9, and so forth. However, when Jesus was here on earth, he was a threat to them. He exposed them because they had a sham form of righteousness that was an external thing, not a matter of the heart, not out of love for Christ. And then when real righteousness walked in their midst, the Lord Jesus, they felt very exposed. They felt very uh, naked that people would see them as they really are in the light of the true righteousness that Christ showed when he was in their midst. And people are like that today. If you live righteously, if you live a godly life in the workplace, in the school, there will be others who will be uncomfortable around you. They will feel like, even if you never say a word, they will feel like you are accusing them. Well, it's their conscience accusing them, and they blame it on you because you are exposing their unrighteousness. You are exposing their sin. You are pricking their conscience by your right behavior. So sin uh, or light illuminates. Light also exposes and that's what Jesus is saying here. Now, if we are Christians, if we're living the way we should live, following Christ, Beatitudes, we'll be seen. We'll be different. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
I don't know about you, but what, what comes to my mind, it's not on a hill, <clears throat> is Manhattan, you know, at night. The lights, lights everywhere, just radiant and brilliant uh, cityscape lighting up the night sky. Well, think back. When Jesus said a city on a hill cannot be hidden, what would have come to the minds of his hearers in a day before electricity and the light bulbs? Well, it wouldn't have been as brilliantly lit as Manhattan, as even Atlanta at night. There would have been some oil lamps. Not much. But in the alternative, which is pitch black darkness, they stood out. They could be seen directly. And even, we see this, uh, even just ambient light on a cloudy night. It's amazing how much light there is, even if there's no lights on around you, because the clouds reflect the light of the city. It's not as dark as it otherwise would be. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It will be seen. Our light is meant to be seen. It's meant to be, uh, it will be seen, and it's meant to be seen, as Jesus speaks here of the light being not put under a basket, but put up on a stand where it can, can illuminate the entirety of the home, of the room that it's in, so everyone can see what's going on. Nothing more useless than a little lamp, oil, oil, uh, olive oil lamp burning that's placed under a basket. No, don't, don't hide it. You lift it up. You put it up where it can be seen and where it can illuminate the whole room. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. The light is meant to be seen, and it gives light to all in the house. Now, what is the light? Again, what is this to look like? Uh, D.A. Carson, in his commentary uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, I think puts it well. He says, what is the light where to shine before others? In this context, we read of neither personal confrontation, you know, not grabbing someone by the lapel and shaking them, nor ecclesiastical pronouncement. Rather, the light is the good deeds performed by Jesus' followers, performed in such a way that at least some men recognize these followers of Jesus as sons of God and come to praise this Father whose sons they are. Now, he describes how this light might look. Again, just some practical ways. The norms of the kingdom worked out in the lives of the heirs of the kingdom constitute the witness of the kingdom. Such Christians refuse to rob their employers by being lazy on the job or to rob their employees by succumbing to greed and stinginess. They're first to help a colleague in difficulty, last to return a barbed reply. Um, this light shines as we serve others, perhaps even serving our enemies, returning good for evil. Romans 12, uh, and as the other places in the Sermon on the Mount will we'll elaborate on later, that's how the light of Christ shines in us, in our godly character, and our love toward those who are unloving toward us, and our willingness to forgive, and our willingness to, and our ability in Christ to speak a word of grace rather than a word of condemnation, uh, to speak gently, not harshly, uh, to, to, to perform deeds of love and service toward others. In all of these ways, the light shines. And the purpose, again, is not to draw attention to ourselves, not to build ourselves up, but as a witness to the grace of God in Christ. Look at what Jesus says. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus is going to warn us later in the Sermon on the Mount about the danger of serving God for the purpose of being seen by men. So it will look good. So people will say, oh, how religious he is. Well, that's, that's bad. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. 
Jesus is saying, live for Christ, serve Christ, reflect the character of Christ. People will see it. And when they see it, they are to glorify your Father. And you are to give glory to your Father. What do you have, Christian, that you did not receive by the grace of God in Christ? And so Jesus teaches us you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. These things are not imperatives. Be salt, be light. But they're indicatives. If you're a Christian, you are salt. You are light. As Christians, living as Christians, we preserve, we illumine, we expose by virtue of who and what we are. However, because of sin in our lives, or perhaps the fear of man, we can lose our saltiness. We're not living out the patterns that we find here in in the Beatitudes. Our light can become dim, can become hidden altogether. Our salt can lose its flavor. What if that happens? What if we sense that that happens? What if in reading Jesus' words here you feel somewhat convicted that you're not being salt and light? Well, what do we do? First of all, we need to repent. Uh, All of us failed to one degree or another. In this way, we can all go before the Lord and confess we have not been the salt, salty salt we want to be or the brilliant light we would like to be, <clears throat> and that in God's grace we can be, and ask God to forgive us, to confess our sins, repent before God, and pray for him to help us. We need to ask God to make us, uh, as individual believers, as a church, as a group of Christians, to be different from society, distinguished by our Christ-likeness, to be salt and light. See, if you and I become like the world, we don't have anything to offer the world. Only insofar as we resemble Christ, only insofar as our lives reflect this pattern set forth in the Beatitudes, will we, in the world, be salt and light? Let's pray. Lord, we confess that often, far too often, we have failed to be salty. We have failed to be light. Lord, whether it's because we have not been behaving differently, because we're afraid, whatever the cause might be, we confess it. Father, we pray that you would work in us grace to repent, grace to obey, that our lives would be like Jesus. That would be seen in us, maybe even when we're not aware of it. That we would not be afraid of others, not afraid to speak of Christ, not afraid to speak up for what is right against what is wrong, for what is true against what is false, whatever the consequences might be. Lord Jesus, you feared no one and you lived the most holy life the world has ever seen. We pray that to some degree we too would be holy, we too would be bold. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.